Well, good morning. Hope you all are doing well. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, uh, I'd like to encourage you to make your way to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, Matthew's in the New Testament, it's the first gospel of the New Testament. Uh, we're rounding the corner, we're getting close to finishing up our examination of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount that takes place between Matthew chapters 5 through 7 in this series uh, called Tell Me the Story of Jesus, where what we're attempting to do is to piece together all four Gospels chronologically. And the Gospels weren't written in a chronological manner. They aren't read, meant to be read in that way. And so you'll find some events in some Gospels in different places than other Gospels. It's meant to record the story of Jesus. And so what we're doing is we're wanting to piece these together so we can get the complete picture of Jesus' life, his ministry, his teachings, the meaning it has in our own life, and his death and his resurrection. This morning we turn our attention to, in Matthew 7, to judging. Um, and so it's going to be a fun topic. You know, when I was in sixth grade, I played the trumpet in the school band. And uh, I remember it, it was around Christmas time and we were getting ready for our Christmas band concerts. And I was sitting on the edge of a stage uh, with my friend Ryan at the time, who also was a trumpeteer. And uh, we were just talking, minding our own business. We were waiting for the, uh, the band director to come and get us and tell us it's time to go out to the gymnasium where the actual concert would take place and we would uh, perform sounds of Christmas. I don't know if it was actually music at that moment, but it was definitely sounds of Christmas. Um, and so we're sitting there, me and Ryan are sitting there, and we're just kind of talking, minding our own business. And uh, all of a sudden... Um, this girl walks up to me and taps me on the shoulder, which surprised me. I mean, in sixth grade, I was not the type of individuals that girls would walk up to uh, to talk to. And so I was kind of taken off guard. Well, she tapped me on the shoulder, so I turned around to look at her, and she knelt down, and her eyes were real big, and she looked me in the aisle, and she smiled, and she says, you know, if you lost a little weight, you'd probably be pretty cute. I'm sure this meant, was meant as some sort of compliment, but I took it at that moment as a judgment on my weight because in sixth grade I was about the same size horizontally as I was vertically. And so I looked at her, comprehending what she just told me, and so I looked her back in the eye and I smiled and I said, Thanks, you too. Uh, so that was the last time she talked to me, but that's fine. Uh, we actually moved that summer uh, to Illinois. We, we were in the uh, south side of Kansas City at that time. And, uh, but anyway, you know, her loss and Jamie's gain, and right? right? What's that? Yeah, yeah, the Holy Spirit came upon my mouth and my tongue and uh, just gave me the words to say in that moment. And, uh, but anyway, um, there's a, a dangerous place to be when we judge from person to person. The Bible actually brings across as sinful, it's a very evil practice. And this morning we're going to see what Jesus, in fact, teaches us about judging, uh, to understand why we shouldn't judge, to also understand what are some aspects of life we can judge on. And so let's read our passage, and we will uh, walk through this. Beginning in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, the word of the Lord says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, 
And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and we have been praising your name and your goodness and your grace and your mercy and, and, and declaring what we believe. And we believe your word tells us the promise or two or more meet we are in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so we are so thankful by your grace and your mercy we're able to be in your presence and be able to come into your throne room of grace that we might find more mercy and obtain more grace. Lord, we pray right now in this moment that your word and your word alone would be the only thing that is spoken here in this place and that our ears would be able to hear it, our eyes would be able to see it, our hearts would be attentive to it and be willing to accept it. So help all of our hearts here this morning submit to your will. We pray that your kingdom would be done in each and every life, in each and every family, and in, and in this church. Thank you for just blessing us the way you do. Thank you for allowing us to have your word. And we pray your spirit would just give us the insight we need as you do with your disciples. Forgive us if we failed you in any way. And we pray this on the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So the open question is, should we judge? And it's not really an easy answer. Sometimes, obviously, Jesus says, judge not. But there are certain areas in life in which we should judge. And we're going to find that out this morning. The word judge there in verse 1 from the Greek means to criticize. It means to condemn. It means to look at someone and to find a fault with them. Now, in the bulk of the context of Jesus' teaching, when he's speaking about judgment, he's speaking between believer and believer. Hence, in verse 3, he uses the word brother. The warning we learn in judgment, the judgment that we pass on to a believer, or the, the measure, the standard we use with one another as believers, is the same measure the same standard that God is going to use upon us, and He, in fact, is going to have the final say. What Jesus is not saying here in this moment is that we cannot look at our brothers and sisters in Christ and hold them to a level of accountability. But when we do that, when we call someone out for maybe a sinful action or a sinful way of living or, or something they're doing that doesn't fit the Word of God, it always must come from the avenue of love. The judgment Jesus is speaking of here is a self-righteous judgment. It's to look at somebody and say, I would never do that. Or I can't believe they did that. Self-righteous judgment can be seen in the chapter 8 of the Gospel of John. We're told during Jesus' ministry, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they bring her to Jesus. And they want Jesus to pronounce the judgment upon her life as based upon the law of God, which was, in fact, stoning. And so the, the passage seems to imply they keep asking Jesus to respond, to make his judgment. And Jesus, if you're familiar with the story, is just kind of playing around in the dirt, and he finally stands up and delivers his judgment. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And so this silence describes and the Pharisees, they eventually left Jesus, and this woman is left standing there or, or kneeling there, and Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. He gives her grace and mercy instead of judgment. The simple lesson from that passage and the passage we're looking at this, at this morning is that we are not to place judgment upon others. We're not to place judgment while we live in this body. The Bible does reveal there's going to be a time when God's people are going to rule and judge with Christ over those who have yet to accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But it doesn't come while we live in this earthly body. It only comes when we, we, we get our glorified body. So to unpack the hypocrisy of judging, Jesus uses an hyperbole, 
which is an exaggerated statement there in verses 3 through 5. The images of one believer seeing something wrong with another and then casting a judgment. But Jesus points out that we're out of place when we do that. We have no right and no ground to do that because we have a log in our eye. The word log can be read as beam or plank. And the image Jesus is revealing is we who wrestle with sin become blinded by our own sin, and therefore we're incapable of dealing with another believer's sin, which Jesus refers to a speck, which we read as a splinter or a piece of straw. The lesson he's trying to teach is how can we who are blinded by our own sinful choices and our own sinful actions help another who is not as bad off as we are? Jesus is not teaching there are levels or stages of sin. According to Scripture, all sin is sin. But Jesus does give us a proper course of action in verse 5 in dealing first with our own sinfulness before attempting to deal with someone else's. Again, he's not saying we can't or we shouldn't hold each other accountable. He's telling us we must make sure we're doing it from the right spiritual state. I don't believe we have any judgmental, self-righteous people here, and I believe if I asked, no one would say they are that sort of person. But you've probably come across them. The point of what Jesus is teaching is that we all can be tempted to become that. We all can be tempted to become self-righteous. We all can be tempted to become judgmental towards other people. And though Jesus here is speaking of a judgment between a believer and believer, the Apostle Paul was led by the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 2 to talk about the improper action of a judgment between a believer and an unbeliever. And we'll look at that in a moment. It might surprise us, but most people stop going to church not because they stopped believing in Jesus, not because they stopped believing in the gospel, but because they felt judged by the people in the church. And there are people who will never come to church not because of the gospel message and not because of Jesus Christ, but because they feel if they came to church, the people in the church would judge them. As God's people who form the local body, which is the church, we are commanded not to judge, but to love. But we can be like kids sometimes, can't we? Parents, when we tell our kids not to do something, what's the great rebuttal question? Why? Why can't I do it? Well, Jesus, why can't I judge The first reason is our judgment is tainted. To see this truth, I want to encourage you to turn to the Old Testament book of Jonah. Jonah is a minor prophet, not because of its lack of importance, but because of its length. It's a little bit hard to find because it's after Obadiah, which is only one chapter before the book of Micah. Some of us might be familiar with the story of Jonah. I mean, it's one of those stories that tends to end up in children's Bibles, and we teach in children's church, or maybe you grew up in Sunday school and you heard it numerous times. Jonah was commissioned by God to be a prophet. But unlike other prophets in the Old Testament, God commissioned Jonah to be a prophet to the Assyrian Empire. Now, the Assyrian Empire at this time was in power over the Jewish people. And so to get our story going, look in verse 1 of chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, Away from the presence of the Lord. Did you hear how many times Tarshish is bring up? Because where was Jonah called to go? Nineveh. 
But we're told three times in verse 3 what Jonah, in fact, did. Now, prophets were used by God to pronounce God's judgment, typically, except with Jonah, on God's people. It was not the prophet's judgment. It was the word of the Lord given to the prophet to deliver a judgment on what was going on with his people. But again, notice Jonah's task isn't for God's people. Instead, Jonah is supposed to go to Nineveh. And Nineveh at this time was one, a city of great wealth within the Assyrian army. These were not God's people. And so God's people looked upon the Assyrians as evil, wicked people. They were sinful. They did not belong within the covenant of God, the covenant of Abraham. But God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And what does Jonah do? Well, he goes, but not to Nineveh. Instead of going to Nineveh, which was a landlocked city, Jonah gets on a boat and decides he's going to sail to Tarshish. That's a hard city to say. Tarshish. Here's the thing when you understand, because we can relate, I believe, a lot to Jonah in this moment. So Jonah heard the word of the Lord. Jonah understood the word of the Lord. And then Jonah chose to disobey the word of the Lord. He was choosing sin. And so why did Jonah make this choice? Well, no, most of us know how the story goes. We'll just do a summary and work our way through this book. So Jonah's on this boat. A huge storm comes, right? All the crew goes into a panic. They start casting lots, trying to figure out, you know, how are they going to get out of this mess? Jonah finally comes forward and confesses this. We're in this mess because of me. And he says, just toss me overboard. And so they didn't want to do it, but then they did it. And the storm ceased, right? And then we're told that God appointed a great fish to come and swallow Jonah whole, to which he remained in that fish alive for three days and three nights. Verse 17 of chapter 1. Then jumping to the end of chapter 2, chapter 2 is about Jonah's confession, his repentance. The fish vomits Jonah out in verse 10. That sounds disgusting, right? And I imagine Jonah smelt disgusting. But he's finally on God's plan. He says, I'm finally going to go to Nineveh. I'm going to go deliver the word of the Lord to them. So we come to chapter 3 of Jonah. He's in the city of Nineveh delivering the word to the the Ninevites to repent with this warning in verse 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And amazingly what happens is the people of Nineveh and the king, and most not not like the king of Assyria, probably some sort of governor, some sort of authority rule, they all repent. They hear the word of the Lord and they repent. And so we want to stop right there and say, good job, Jonah. You obeyed the word of God. You saw the power of God move on the people's hearts. It changed their heart. But the story doesn't end at chapter 3. If you know the story, you know that Jonah was not very happy. The end of chapter 3, verse 10, it says that when God saw what they did, speaking of the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. And what's so amazing about this story is these were not the people of God, yet they were responding to the word of God better than God's people did when the prophet spoke over them. They repented. But it says in the beginning of chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And that word exceedingly goes with angry. What it means is Jonah 
saw the mercy of God. He saw the grace of God. He saw the forgiveness of God and the love of God. And he saw how God responded to the Ninevites. And it made Jonas think that God's actions were evil. He was completely opposed to what God did. He's so upset. If you look in verse 3, he asked God to take his own life. He's so mad. Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So he sees God's mercy. He sees God's grace. He sees God's forgiveness. And what he wants is for God to end his life because God did what Jonah knew God would do. Well, the next scene is Jonah becomes exceedingly happy because God appoints a plant to provide shade so Jonah can kind of cool off a little bit. He just had the successful ministry, more successful than some of the other prophets in Scripture. And why is he so upset? Again, it's because Jonah understood God. Look in verse 2 of chapter 4. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew... You are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. What is going on with Jonah? Here's what's going on. Jonah's a prophet told to deliver the judgment from God, but Jonah had already made his judgment upon the Ninevites. He is a prejudiced prophet. They did not deserve his grace, God's grace, his mercy, his steadfast love. They didn't deserve any of that. And he's so fed up. He's so mad, he just wants to die. And what corrupted Jonah? His social upbringing and his pride and his nationality. And this is how our judgment is tainted. We may not think we have prejudices, but we do. Now, you may not be prejudiced against skin, and if you are, you really need to find some help about that. You need to find some counsel. You need to get into the Word of God. But I guarantee we all have prejudices when we see certain people dressed a certain way. Drive around in Springfield and we'll jump to a conclusion or a judgment when we see someone on the side of the road. We have prejudice when we hear people talk a certain way or act a certain way. We will jump to conclusions. What are we doing? We're judging. We're casting a judgment upon them. I heard on the radio a couple weeks ago from a, a pastor And he says this, we have to remember at one point in time, that was someone's baby. At one point in time, that was a happy child. And instead of casting judgment, we should pray because somewhere along the line, something happened. A situation we are not aware of, which has put that person in that situation. See, we have to understand our judgment is tainted because we don't know the whole story. The second reason why we aren't to judge is because our judgment is flawed. Turn with me to the New Testament book of of Romans. To understand what's going on here in Romans, we're going to be in Romans 2, by the way. So let's set this up a little bit. In Romans 1, Paul is introducing himself to the Roman believers. He is telling them why he is so passionate about the gospel, and then he delivers why individuals refuse to accept the gospel. And so after unpacking that at the end of Romans chapter 1, after unpacking the wickedness of men, the the hard-heartedness and the pridefulness of men or individuals, 
Paul is immediately led by the Spirit to turn his attention to judgment. And so in Romans chapter 2, here's the judgment between a believer and an unbeliever. And the word of the Lord says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, should be in quotes. I can see Paul doing that. Practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because you have a hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And here's what God is telling us. Our judgment is flawed because even though we can look at individuals and we can identify a sin in people, people who do not know God, we are in danger of not identifying the sin in our own lives. We can all be tempted to see someone who doesn't know God or at least doesn't know the one true God and we can roll our eyes and we can point our fingers and we can bad mouth them behind their backs to people who would agree with us. We may not be throwing physical stones, but we're throwing spiritual stones. And we have to remember what Jesus said in John 8, let him who without sin among you be the first to throw the stone. And this is the premise that Paul is pulling from here in Romans chapter 2. We as God's people, here we need to hear this. We as God's people who know better, let's be honest, we don't always do better. No amen? <laughs> we have to remember sin is sin to God. There's no classification. There's no degree. There's no level. And just as we can't judge sin of the believers, we're... We have to deal with our own sin, but we also can't judge the sin of unbelievers who just don't know better. If they don't know God, we can't keep them to the standard that God is calling us to stay to. So our judgment is flawed because of our sinful nature. Now go with me back to Matthew chapter 7. You've got to have your fingers ready today. <laughs> now, Jesus does point out in this passage there's a need for a believer-to-believer accountability. There is a time when judgment is needed. So when? When do we use judgment? Well, first, our judgment is to be self-focused. This is the whole meaning of the hyperbole in verses 3 through 5 concerning the log and the speck. So instead of looking at other people's sins, instead of looking at other people's struggles, what we have to do, we have to be self-focused on our judgment we have to allow the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts, to reveal the places in our life which don't measure up to God's will and don't measure up to God's word. What we're being taught is before we can adequately help another believer with a struggle, with a sin, we have to first examine our life and deal with our struggles first. And if we don't, we're not going to be, see, be able to see clearly enough the actual problem, and therefore we won't find the correct remedy to the problem. And here again, Jesus uses the word hypocrite there in verse 5. And he uses it now again in the realm of judging. And so it can be read like this. 
You think you're perfect? You're not. You think you have it all together? You don't. Because if you were perfect, if I were perfect, if we had it all together, we would need a Savior. And we need a Savior every single day. If we don't focus on our struggles with sin, and then we try to help someone else's struggle, oh, let me come along and help you. The image that Jesus is giving is that we're like a blind eye surgeon trying to do a major eye surgery. Now, I don't know about you. I don't want a blind eye surgeon doing a major eye surgery on me. Matter of fact, I don't want a blind surgeon doing any sort of surgery on me. But that's the image that Jesus pointed out. So how do we become self-focused in our judgment? We read the Bible. We study the Bible. We hear the Bible. We meditate on the Bible. Why the Bible? Because the Bible is the word of the Lord. It comes from a perfect place. And when we do this, here's some questions we should ask. When we read something in Scripture, we should ask, am I doing this? Does this describe me? Would I fit within the pages of Scripture? We have to allow God's Word to judge us, and that's what I mean by being self-focused. Finally, when are we to judge? Our judgment is to be discerning. Look in verse 6, and I know some of you are hoping we would get to this verse, so. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. And uh, Ethan, why don't you leave that verse up there for a second? What in the world are dogs and pigs and holy and pearls? What in the world does that have to do with judging? There are some people who think that Jesus is actually changing topics here for a second, and he's moving on to something else. But we're going to take this apart and understand what this has to do with judging and discernment. So Thomas Tehan and David Abernathy, who are obviously smarter individuals than I am, they point out that this is what is known as a grammatical chiasm, okay? Which means it's kind of a reverse parallelism or crossing over in which the thought is organized typically in an A, B, B, A pattern. So when we look at this verse, the A would be dogs, and it would go with pigs, would be A. So that means they're equal. They're synonymous. The B would be holy, and the other B would be pearls. So we have the A dogs, B holy, B pearls, A pigs. And so the dogs and the pigs are equal. They're synonymous. They're the same thing Jesus is speaking about here. So are the holy and the pearls. They're the same thing. Jesus is, is bringing this out. So the trampling would reply to, would refer to the pigs, and the turn to attack you would refer to the dogs and their, their actions. And so we can find this form repeatedly. If you read through the book of Proverbs, you find this form, and you can find it in the book of Psalms as well. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's given a proverbial teaching lesson, applying it to judging. And so to understand what in the world Jesus is saying about dogs and pigs and holy and pearls and trampling and attacking, we have to dive deeper into cultural context because Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience. Now here who likes, here who likes dogs. Okay. 
Some of us love dogs. Some of us want to have pet dogs. My wife wants to have multiple dogs. We keep it at two, all right? That's far as many as we can get at this moment. But she already has her list of when poor Ginger and Charlie go to dog heaven, which we already know what's going to fill their place. I mean, she's got the list marked up. Okay. In the Jewish world, dogs were not pets. They were wild animals. Dogs and pigs were equal because they're both unclean animals. The dogs were scavengers. So when I think about dogs in the Jewish context, my mind goes to like alley cats. If you go try to help an alley cat, they run away from you, right? And if you corner it, it's going to hiss and swipe at you, even if you're trying to help it and trying to feed it. So dogs in Jesus' day did the same thing, that they were wild. So when you try to help them, you try to feed them, they'd attack you. Now, pigs were also unclean animals. This is why if you look in Luke chapter 15, when Jesus gives the parable of the prodigal son, and when the son leaves, he says that he was feeding the pigs and longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. When Jesus' audience would have heard that, dealing with pigs, they would have been disgusted in their stomach. That is the worst possible situation you can find yourself in in life. So the dogs and the pigs here in verse 6 represent individuals who are unclean. Or as we might say today, individuals who are still in their sin because they have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now what are the holy and the pearls? Again, we have to go to context of what Jesus is saying here. The holy things, which in some versions that's what it says, do not give holy things to pigs, or do not give holy things, or give dogs what is the holy things. The holy things would refer to the food that was brought to the temple that was specifically for the priests and their family and only they could eat. So it was consecrated. It was set apart specifically for that person. So the understanding is consecrated food, and Jesus always would have got this, consecrated food is never meant to be given to wild, unclean animals like dogs. That'd be outrageous. The pearls would represent something of great value. And therefore, we would understand this. We would not throw something of great value to pigs. You wouldn't throw a million dollars or a diamond ring into a pig trough, would you? That'd be That'd be ridiculous. And so Jesus' audience would have understood that too. But they would have been at surface level. And so how does this apply today? What are the holy things and the things of great value in the life of a believer today? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because it's a passing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. So coming back, here's the lesson that Jesus is giving us. We have to have discerning judgment when it comes to evangelism. As God's people, we are commanded to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to this world. We are ministers of reconciliation. We are the means to which God wants to share his love so people can find the means of forgiveness and salvation. But in sharing the gospel, 
We have to have discerning judgment when people treat their sin and they treat the love of God over their sin and the gospel of Jesus Christ as having no worth. Leon Morris writes, We must bear in mind that some hear the gospel only to rebel. And disciples are not called to keep an offering, keep on offering it to those who continue to reject it with vicious contempt. We understand this. It's hopeless to offer somebody advice when they have no desire to be corrected. What we offer is the love of God. And if we offer the love of God and continue to offer the love of God to an individual and they continue to see it of no value, we are casting pearls before pigs and holy things to dogs. We have to discerning judgment when offering things which are holy and of great worth to us when we give it to people who abuse it or become defensive, maybe even violent. Jesus would say it a little more straightforward in Matthew chapter 10. He's going to send out his 12 disciples, and he gives them this instruction. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust off from your feet when you leave that house or town. Our discerning judgment is when it comes to evangelism, we are to recognize that just because someone doesn't accept the gospel we proclaim, that does not give us permission to stop presenting the gospel. Instead, we must recognize we've been given holy and precious things, valuable things, and we are to give it to people, and sometimes they're not going to understand its worth. But we have to continue to present the holy things, the precious things, the pearls. But sometimes you will present it to dogs and pigs. And what we have to do is we have to shake the dust off our feet and press on. You might be thinking, man, pastor's calling people dogs and pigs. No, Jesus did means they're unclean. It means they're still in their sin. They're still lost. Now, there's one more aspect of judgment we have to deal with this morning before we close. And that is found in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 25. And you don't have to turn there at the moment, but you can read it later if you'd like. What it concerns is the final judgment. For sake of time, I just want to summarize where Jesus again gives a parable in the final judgment, Jesus reveals that all people, from all nations, all nationalities, all ethnicities, all people are going to stand before the resurrected Christ one day. And what Jesus does in Matthew 25 is he reminds us that on this earth there's only two types of people. There are people who are saved and know Jesus, and there are people who are not saved and therefore don't know Jesus. And so Jesus is going to look at all people, and he's going to put them in these two subgroups, because that's all there really is on this earth. And he's going to pronounce the righteous judgment. And for those who have been found in Christ, have placed their faith in Christ, have found forgiveness and begun eternal life, Jesus is going to declare this judgment. Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And then Jesus is going to look to the other group of people, the people who did not know him as their Lord and Savior, and this is the judgment he's going to pronounce on them. Depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The reality of that passage of Scripture is every single human being is one day going to stand before the one true judge who is Jesus Christ. 
And the question I have to pose this morning, and you have to answer this morning, is which group are you going to be in? Which group are you going to be in? Are you going to be in the ones that Jesus says, welcome home, because you knew him and he knew you, because you found forgiveness in Christ and the gift of eternal life through Christ alone, by your faith in Christ alone? Are you going to be in the group who denied Christ, who sat here this morning and heard the holy things, the pearls, and yet you still deny Christ? You treated them as nothing, and therefore Jesus will judge you into hell. If you're here and you don't know, you're not sure, then I want to invite you to come down here in a moment. I'm going to be standing right here, and I just want you to say, Pastor Mike, I, I need to be saved. I need Jesus. But if you're here and you know for sure that you're going to be in that group right, right here in this moment, you're going to be that group that Jesus is going to cast into hell, and you know you want to change that, I'm going to ask you to come down and say, Pastor Mike, I need Jesus. Maybe you're here and the Spirit has revealed to you you have a judgmental heart towards people. He's definitely revealed it to me, and you just need to come and kneel before the Father and say, Lord, forgive me. Help me to see people the way you see them that are made in the image and likeness of you. But we come to this time of invitation and I'm going to invite you to come. Everyone's going to stand and sing. And I'm just going to invite you to step out and come down the aisle and let it be known what's going to happen. Maybe you need forgiveness. Maybe you need salvation. Maybe you just need repentance. But if you need forgiveness, I want to walk you through it real quick. If you need salvation, I want to tell you how it happens. It begins by admitting to God that you're a sinner. It starts there. You don't have to tell me. You tell God. I mean, here's the thing. He already knows it about you. So you admit, God, I'm a sinner. I do things I know I should not do, things I am not proud of, things that are not according to your word. And the beauty of it is you don't have to stop there. That's the gospel. Then you tell God, but God, I believe your son, Jesus Christ, your only son died for my sins and rose again that I could be forgiven from my sins and be given eternal life. And the final part the Bible tells you to do is you have to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and that you've accepted God's forgiveness. And part of confession is making it publicly known. And so that's why I stand here, and that's why I invite you to come, to come and confess that you need to be saved. Come and confess you need forgiveness. Come and confess that today is the day of your salvation. So we're going to pray, and I'm going to ask uh, Nick and Bridget to come back up and lead us in a song. And I want to pray over us real quick. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for taking care of us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord. Help us, Lord, never to have a heart like Jonah, where we understand you, we know you, and yet we believe that some people are two below you. Lord, give us a heart of compassion and love just as your son had who sat with sinners and tax collectors and ate with them. Lord, give us a heart to love people as you command us to. Forgive us we failed you in any way, Lord. And I, I pray in this moment if there are people here this morning that need to accept your gift of salvation, Lord, your spirit would give them the courage and the wisdom to understand that and they would come down the aisle and have their eternal destiny and identity changed forever. We give you all the glory for you alone are worthy of it. We praise the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.